Another old college buddy of mine, Gabriel Rhodes, or as I knew him, Gabe Rhodes, has made an interesting career as a documentary film editor. And so let's talk to him now on DaleWileyShow.com. Okay. Are you there? I'm here. Hey. How you doing, Dale? <laughs> well, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. Happy to <laughs> well, be alive. <laughs> well, that is good. I'm the same after having my strokes. I'm definitely happy to be alive. And I did so, not know that you had strokes. That's scary. That's awful. I know. Wow. And, you know, so that's just kind of one of those things where I just felt like it'd be a great thing just to reach out to people and see what people are doing. And you've had so interesting, you know, you've had a very interesting life. And so I thought I would start just by talking about Wash U and all the connections there and all what we did. Of course, if I can remember, uh, whatever I can remember is yours. I just will do my best, okay? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sometimes it fails me. And so anyway, we were, you know, we knew each other from freshman year. You were in Umrath as well, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. All right. You were on Umrath 1. I was on Umrath 3. <laughs> you remember it better than I do. I do remember <laughs> being on the first floor. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I can almost picture the hall. <laughs> it was, it's kind of amazing when I, when I've gone back to watch you the couple of times now to see the kind of, you know, the kind of, un they just build unreal facilities for these kids now. Yeah. It's really amazing to see how different it is. Well, college has changed in general. I mean, I just don't, I feel like it's a completely different idea of an institution now. You know, it's, it's, um, I don't know, may maybe it's just hindsight, but I feel like the kids now get pampered a little bit more than we did, you know? <laughs> well, pretty clearly. <laughs> Yeah. You know, you you start telling them all the things we didn't have. You know, we didn't even have cable in in that dorm. I mean, I didn't have a TV in that dorm. Yeah. We didn't have any of that stuff. We I, I think we had a TV down in the lobby or in the whatever, the hangout in the, in the Yeah. you know, the yeah. common room or whatever, but Well, you know, uh, my roommate Scott Levine brought one, but it was a very small TV and it yeah. sure didn't have much. Yeah. And so yeah. so basically but the thing I know you from more, I know you from the writing class that we took with Stanley mm -hmm. Elkin. And then I also specifically know you from Mercy Me, your band. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about both of those things. Oh, those are big topics. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was really interesting hearing, you know, you and Barry talk about uh, Stanley Elkin's class because I, I reflect on it a lot. Although my memories are a little bit hazy uh, from uh -huh. that class. I, I mean, I remember that story with Barry like it was yesterday. Um, <laughs> I I remember him being wheeled into that class and yes. how grumpy he was with his wife every time. And he, <laughs> it, the, 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 the wheelchair would hit the wall and he would he would yell and bark at her. Right. And, and yes, it was like I was always alarmed and so scared of him. <laughs> yes. But I also revered him. I mean, I really, I actually didn't read a lot. I think I read some of his books at that time. I read more later. And so right. years later, uh, when I was reading him again, and also meeting people who had really loved Stanley Elkin. So like yeah. people I met later who were going to graduate school and right. had studied Stanley Elkin in undergrad or in graduate school and really, yes. really um, 
educated me on where he stood within the canon, you know? Yes, uh, definitely. I was so amazed that we had that experience with this guy, you know, I and know. how lucky we were. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, the, the thing that I want to say is you and I both got Stanley to write us letters of recommendation as well. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about it, that. It was hugely, it was, it was, I think it was the only recommendation I got leaving Wash U. Maybe I got one uh -huh. more. Um, and, you know, I think at that time you don't know what those are going to, how they're going to serve you. Right. Uh, sure. But, but that one, that one carried a lot of weight in a way. And it got oh, me yeah. um, positions down the road. Uh, I, I remember, so when I left Wash U, I, I went and um, I stayed in St. Louis for one year. And I okay. continued to work at Cicero's. I was the doorman at Cicero's for <laughs> two and a half years or something like that. Um, During two, it, two and a half pretty years, too. That was good. Too, amazing. Door, oh, my Cicero. God. That's a whole nother conversation. We can have that conversation, <laughs> too, because that I have a lot of memories of. I spent a lot of time in that basement. Those were I was very close to all those people that worked in that bar. And yes. I had such a good time. And um, after I left St. Louis, I moved with Mercy Me. We all moved to Durham, North Carolina. Okay. And why? And we, um, because we, it's a, it, we actually were looking for a place to uh, base ourselves from on the East Coast. We knew we wanted right. to be able to tour up and down the East Coast. Sure. And so we needed proximity to small towns and college towns, and we needed it to be cheap. And right. we, we literally, uh, we laid out a map and we kind of blindly pointed to really? Raleigh Durham. It was, it was, uh, it was a random choice. We had, I think we had, we've sort of isolated certain pockets of areas where like, okay, would this work? Would this work? How expensive is it here? How expensive is it there? Sure. And that one ended up being the one that felt like this could be doable. We found a house in Durham, uh, for, the six of us that was $900 a month. <laughs> so we each were living, paying 150 in rent and we, we could afford to be there, including a, an entire room just for our, just for rehearsal. So that it was a room uh -huh. that could fit all of our gear. We could load in and out of that room into a van in a driveway and up and out the driveway. So it, it was, it was a great place to be, although a random weird place to be. <laughs> and uh, where the story is going is that by when I uh, when the band started touring, we had a lot of downtime. You know, we there were weeks where we were playing three shows a week, four shows a week. And then there were weeks where we were playing none. And right. during one of those particular down periods, um, the rest of the band all went to their respective homes to see their parents, to see their relatives, uh -huh. whatever. And right. I was left alone. I had nowhere to go that weekend, that week or whatever. So I stayed in Durham by myself. And at that time, I was playing a lot of basketball. And so I, I um, was walking. There was a basketball court about half a mile up a hill from our house. And I was walking up to that basketball court. And this Cadillac pulls up next to me. And okay. this window rolls down. And um, this guy says, hey, uh, I, I, need to, I need to find a dentist. I, I have this really bad tooth. Do you know where I can get a dentist? And I, and I looked in the car, and it was Dom DeLuise. The actor really? and the comedian and, and the, <laughs> okay. uh, the, the, uh, the chef. Um, and so I said, aren't you Dom DeLuise? And he said, yeah, what about it? 
And I said, what are you doing here? Like, it was like the no, we were in the middle of this random neighborhood in Durham. Wow. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm going to the, uh, the diet center. And Duke University had this kind of famous rice. They had this rice diet center okay. where people went there and just ate rice. And okay. Dom DeLuise <laughs> had gone there several times in the past and was there now to um, just eat rice for a week so he could lose 25 pounds or whatever okay. it was. And he said, oh, he said, what are you doing here? What do you do? I said, oh, I, I, I uh, work, I play in a band and, you know, but I also really love to do writing because I, you know, I had had this Stanley Elkin experience. Yes. And he said, oh, well, <laughs> he said, I'm looking for a writer to help me write this cookbook. And I, really? I gave him that recommendation. Um, I gave it to Dom. I found it, dug it up and I was like, here, look, see, I was, you know, I can do this. And I gave him the recommendation and he <laughs> hired me on the spot. Uh, really? uh, the next day. And I ended up spending, uh, four or five weeks every day with Dom DeLuise in his apartment while he dictated his, uh, cookbook to me. It was like <laughs> one of the most amazing experiences of my life and really I lucky. Funny experiences too, right? Hilarious. The man was hilarious. <laughs> he really was. Was he a good he guy? I mean, what was he like? Such a nice guy. Um, such a warm incredible person uh it was really really fond memories of that and he uh he was just a really magnanimous person when he was out in public he it was, you know he was a celebrity right especially then sure. i think now kids wouldn't at all know who yeah, he was exactly. but then <laughs> he was still kind of famous right because everyone had he seen was famous Run. yeah that's yeah, a good name yeah so we, we would walk into grocery stores and like everyone would be staring at him and he would you know, that's an awkward position for some people, but he sure. just embraced it and would just go right up to them and be like, how you doing? What's your name? Da, da, da. Like, sure. He would, yes. he just would talk to everybody. He ended up coming to Mercy Me shows. Uh, really? On, on, wow. Yeah, we played a show at Duke University and he, it was like, it was like 15 frat guys and Dom DeLuise. Like that was <laughs> the, the audience. It was amazing. You that's know? so cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Really special. And so how did that lead you to become a film editor? Well, so I left after Mercy Me broke up. That lasted about nine, ten months, I guess. We lived okay. in North Carolina. And at the end of that, the band decided, you know, we all wanted to kind of go our own way and have other experiences. So um, I called up a friend of mine who was living in San Francisco, and he said, I got room in my house. Just come on out here. So. I drove across country and um, settled in the Bay Area. And I had, um, during that, during that, those downtimes in North Carolina, I started going to Duke Library where okay. you could, at that time, you could walk in and um, you could basically check out, you couldn't check out books, you couldn't leave with them, but you could just pull books off the shelf and you right. could also get movies out of the library and watch them there. They had like viewing stations. So uh -huh. I started pulling movies then and watching movies because I'd always had a affinity for cinema. And in um, college, I, I had created a minor at Washington University um, okay. in, in film. So I, I really immersed myself in film with all that free time at Duke. And I started watching documentaries, which I had never really seen before. And I really fell in love with them. Um, there's some really great filmmakers that came out of North Carolina who were documentary filmmakers. They're sort of okay. the seminal, seminal filmmakers. And so they had a huge collection of these filmmakers. And I, there were films like I'd never seen before. This guy, Ross McElwee, it's like a really famous Southern filmmaker. 
So okay. I just fell in love with this stuff. And when I got to San Francisco, I dove into it. And there was a film community out there of documentary filmmakers. Right. Also of seminal filmmakers out in San Francisco. Yes. So I, I, I ended up sort of connecting to them in San Francisco. And um, as soon as I got my hands on an edit system and started working it with with film that had been shot and manipulating story and you know it's kind of like writing you're you're writing the film with the footage that was given to you that doesn't Definitely. necessarily know what it's going to be about yeah it's like scripting well, right you know, in documentary as weird as it is to say you're not the first film editor i've had on the show because oh, cool. i had my old childhood friend byron smith who has worked on House of Cards and some other things. And so we actually had a really cool conversation just about how that was kind of the second most important job as far as creativity went, other than yeah. directing. Yeah. And I think in documentary, it's even more because there so. really is yes. no, there's no game plan for a documentary, right? People right. often are like, I just want to tell this story that could go right. in any direction. And oftentimes that direction is determined in the edit room. Right. Um, so yeah, I I fell in love with that. And that's it was always connected to my love of writing, which was started in that Stanley Elkin class. And <laughs> it, it really and then I sort of combined it with cinema in the documentary form. And that's that's how I found my way to that that craft. And so tell me some of the films that you've edited. Sure. Um let's see. The most recent film I edited is a film called Time. And okay. it was just it just premiered at last year's Sundance, which might be the last film festival of the next <laughs> five years. <laughs> yes. Um, right. It really was the last one to be held. Right. And sure. um, so Time won the directing award at Sundance, which I'm very okay. proud of. Uh, and the filmmaker is a, a young filmmaker named Garrett Bradley. She uh, this is her first feature. She had made short films, and one of them was about a um, a a woman who was uh, dating, mar marrying a her boyfriend in prison. Who he was in okay. prison, she was outside, and through that connection, she ended up meeting this a woman uh, uh, named Fox Rich, whose whose husband had been incarcerated for decades and she had been trying to get him out had been working to get him out and had become sort of an advocate for his release and right. um she garrett started filming with the family um and to tell their story about this what it's like to raise a family the, the sure. fox had raised all their sons their they had uh, six sons she'd raised all of them uh mostly by herself while her husband was incarcerated right. and uh just when Garrett was finishing up this film, which she thought was a short film, Fox said, oh, and by the way, I actually have been like filming everything for the last 20 years. And here's all the tapes and gave them to her. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that's like one of those rare things that happens in documentary film where it's like this just a big treasure chest just fell on her lap. Sure. Wow. So all of a sudden it was like, is this a feature or a short? And so she called. I, she got in touch with me. And I started watching the footage and I, I said, this is this is a feature, I think. You, this is not a short film. You have a lot of great footage here. So we started right. working with the footage. And so the film becomes this 
It's called Time, and it's about the passage of time as you're waiting for someone who you love, who you feel like has been incarcerated for uh, an inordinate amount of time and doesn't deserve to right. be in prison. So what and the story is told for? in the past and the present. Uh, they, so they had robbed a bank. Um, okay. when they were in their early twenties, they were sort of impulsive and had a business that was failing and decided, Hey, maybe the easiest thing to do is just like knock off, knock up this, uh, this credit union, which had been robbed several <laughs> times before. Yes. And, um, they did it. They did the crime. They sort of admitted doing the crime, but in the course of their legal case, he got bad. She pled guilty and was sentenced to like four years. And he pled, uh, he was told to plead innocent by his lawyer oh, and was sentenced no. to uh, 60 years in prison for a first time. Oh, wow. So there was, a, it, you know, it, that's the base of the story. And then the film is really about this sort of this emptiness, this hollowness of what a family is like, where this person's just missing and absent. Um, yes. So I won't tell you what happens in the film, but it's a beautiful, <laughs> it's a beautiful experience and um, and a beautiful love story. So uh, that's the most recent film. And so, what's next? What's going on? So I was working on a film, which I can't really divulge. <laughs> I cannot divulge the uh, the what that one was about, but it was going to be an exciting film. Uh, oh, and no. I was working across the country with a filmmaker who was in California okay. uh, when when COVID hit. And right. when that happened, I was supposed to be going back and forth to California um, two weeks or a week to two weeks out of the month. Sure. And then all of a sudden that wasn't feasible. So we had to sort of shut down that edit uh, and wait until this thing kind of subsides till travel right. is possible again. And in the meantime, I was contacted by a film team that went that has started filming in hospitals in New York. Okay. Um, and so they are. They they asked me to come on board and edit this film as they're shooting. So they're actually in the hospitals in full PPE every day, filming these incredible stories of doctors, nurses, patients, uh, you know, ER, emergency personnel, uh, telling these stories that are happening on the front lines of, of this pandemic. And then, sure. you know, passing the drive straight to me, uh, and in the edit room sanitized. Wow. And, uh, I'm working on those right now that they're incredible. Well, so what's that going to be called? I don't know the title. We don't know. I mean, it's really an interesting process, right? It's like they're filming yeah. all these different stories and we're just trying to figure out which ones hold up. It's, it's a, you know, it's a verite filmmaking team. So uh, that just means there's really no roadmap. It, you sort of know it when you have it and we're, we're finding it as we go. So the title will probably come as we figure out which of these stories are going to rise to the top, but there's some great footage in there. Well, and also kind of that makes me ask the question, how has the world changed for you in terms of being an editor? <laughs> you know, at the beginning of this, um, Someone, another editor sent me this great thing. And it was a picture of a guy sitting at a computer and it said, this is an editor at work. And then they uh -huh. sent another picture uh, and it was a guy sitting in front of a computer and said, this is an editor at work during a pandemic. So okay. it's like, <laughs> nothing's changed. It's you're just right. like sitting in front of a computer and still working on footage, you know, uh, right. we're like one sure. of the, the few industries that really hardly anything has changed. I think where that shift has happened for me is that. Um, you know, content wise, story wise, uh, a lot right. of stories can't be told right now 
I was fortunate enough in the very beginning to be working on a couple of films that were all archival. So, so they didn't actually have to go out and shoot anything. So I was, that kept me employed through that very early stage. And then, then all of a sudden I started getting these calls about films about the pandemic and, uh, I jumped on this one. So I think, I think there's going to be a lot of films about the pandemic coming up, you know, but let's talk about your craft and how it has changed since you first started to now. Sure. Sure. Um, I think when I, you know, I think when I first started, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm self-taught. I never, a lot of editors come up through other editors. So they've mentored or, or they've worked as apprentices. Right. I really, I really dove in and convinced people that I knew what I was doing when I didn't. (laughs) So I think I probably learned in a really bad way and have some bad uh, habits. Um, But I think that's also led me to be, um, open to new yes. challenges, you know, and not, not be constricted to like, there's only one way to, to do this the right way. I think right. that I, sure. I've just bumbled through a lot of wrong ways and figured it out. I'm, I, uh, I think I sort of made a little bit of a, a niche for myself that, that I, I take on challenging projects, um, okay. stories that are, seem like this, this filmmaker doesn't know it doesn't quite know what this story is going to be, or it seems a little random or it's too many pieces. They don't know how to put it all together. Um, and I'm, I think I'm good at putting aside the distractions and honing in on how to tell the story um, without, without sort of normal, you know, constraints. Uh, I I'm open to the challenge and, Sometimes I've regretted taking films where the challenge was huge and it wore me out and exhausted me. I didn't regret it, but it, it you know, at the end <laughs> yes. of it, I felt like, wow, that was really hard, but I'm right. proud of those films. I sort of cracked a nut that was that a lot of people couldn't crack. Uh, and I really enjoy that. So as I've gotten further into my career, I find myself settling in a little bit more and still taking on challenges, but having a lot more self-confidence in doing it and knowing that even though at times it feels like this might be impossible, I know that eventually I'll crack the nut. Um, well, that's, that's wonderful. A, yeah, that's a very re- satisfying feeling, you know. And so, other than do you, so, you don't have any other projects? Is the one coming back that was the the one you can't talk about? One that I hope shall so. not be named. I hope so. I've stayed in touch with <laughs> I stayed in touch with the filmmaker. I'll just say that it is a a very high profile. A music film about a very okay. famous musician um, who who has um, offered up a lot of great uh, a lot of his archive. Uh, oh so wow! That's, well, that's yeah. very cool. It is very cool, and it's one of those rarities, you know, where you're like, I, you know, you hear about it, you're like, that's I I, I want to do that so bad. <laughs> so I was really in love with what I was working on. And it was sad that it got put aside for now, but I have a feeling if it's meant to be, it'll come back. You know. Well, definitely. And so, without going in too much into Cicero's, tell me about Mercy Me. Tell me what was fun about that band. I loved that <laughs> band. Yeah, I loved it too. Um, and you were a great drummer too. I mean, you did. It was really good to see that band. It was amazing. Thanks, Dale. Um, I think what was great about that band was the chemistry between the six of us. We had, sure. um, you know, like we were really all pretty tight. Um, and oh, yeah. 
I, I think Very living tight. together fostered that. Well, we got even more tight when we left St. Louis because then we really were together. We played sure. every day almost. Right. Um, I think that there were two musicians in that band that are two of the most talented musicians I would oh ever have the, the blessings to play with, you know, yes. Josh Bernstein and, and, uh, and Brandon and Bush. Brandon, yes. I mean, really, and Brandon went on to such great things. And I mean, Josh, to all of them, everybody did. Um, so what does Josh do now? Josh is a doctor. He's oh, like really? a, yeah, he, he went wow. to medical school. He had like medical school for him was like, preschool for other people you know it was like the easiest <laughs> thing he, he had such a gift for it i think and uh wow he's he's become a really great doctor and i think he's still playing music um as much as he can um and i know dave rosner i think until recently i know i spoke to him he's still playing some music uh i know liz had been singing until recently dave kaplan not so much um and brandon of course is playing and i was playing right. as well i stayed i continued playing until about five years ago. So really, yeah, we all, we all stuck with it and really had a passion for it. But mercy me was the, that was the foundation for all of us. I think in where we, we, we found each other and it felt like such a good chemistry. We really loved each other's company. We loved the music we were making. And it was one of those first experiences you have with that kind of art form that was foundational, you know, and um, definitely thrilling. And then also, you know, you should never forget that you spend the night on my parents' floor as well. I, where? In, in Missouri or where? where yes, were they? in Crane, Missouri. You played Springfield and you stayed <laughs> at, at my parents' house in Crane, and Missouri. I, no memory of that. I have no memory. <laughs> don't, don't take I offense. I got the picture of it. Uh, oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see that picture. So that <laughs> must have definitely been, put that up there. I'll that must that have been there. in ninety three or something. That would be ninety four, I think. I think ninety four. Yeah. Wow. Because I have that, and we'll also put up the letter of recommendation that Stanley <laughs> Elkin typed for me, and it's one of That's these awesome. like letters of recommendation where it's like <laughs> it's really good, but it's also kind of like he tried to say as little praise as he could honestly give me. That's you know, funny. <laughs> I'll scan mine. I think I have mine somewhere. I'll dig it up and uh, I'll send it to you okay. if I can find it. Yeah. Very cool because yeah. I've enjoyed getting to talk to you. It's been fun to catch up. Yeah, we need to have a separate podca podcast about Cisneros, though. That would that's be great. a whole separate deal. <laughs> oh, what great memories I have of that place. It was so fun. You know, all oh, that yeah. stuff was so fun. Um, Definitely. But great to hear your voice for sure. Definitely. And glad to do it. And so thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot, Dale. Appreciate it. All right. All right. Take care. DaleWileyShow.com.